Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And good morning, Phil. And it is, believe it or not, the eve of the New York congressional primaries. Not to be confused with the actual New York regular primaries that are held in September, but we have New York congressional primaries to be held in June. I believe you were in the legislature when this happened, right? When they set this date? Yeah, I mean, this was a... Why, why in the summer? Why at the beginning of the summer? Just as everybody is doing transition from school to camp and school to vacation or school from from your regular house to your beach house or your mountain house, do we have a primary? So the reason is very simply, now it doesn't have to be in June, um, but the, the answer to the question is that... Every ballot, once once the ballots are set for the general elections, have to be sent overseas to troops um, who are you know stationed all across the country. And so there has to, you have to build in enough time between the primary and the general election, right? And so historically, when you do it in September, you run very very tight. And there was laws that were passed a few years ago that 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 required the change of the date. However, there was no mandate on when that date had to be. And the truth is, we can change the New York date, right? Because if you take a look at the archaic New York system right now, you're voting. Let's let's take a presidential year. Worst case scenario. Well, presidential year, you're voting for the presidential primary in February. You're voting for congressional elections in June. You're voting for state elections in September for primaries. And then once you voted three times in three different primaries, you're voting in a general election in November. And then, Michael, you and I wonder why people don't turn out and vote. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Now, I was in the state legislature, and we talked a lot about combining the days, right? You, there's no reason why the state primaries can't be on the same day as the federal primaries, right? There's no law that requires different days. And so a presidential year is a presidential year. You know, I'd, I would love to change the date of our presidential primaries, but, but obviously I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, and so at least in a year like this, we should have a primary day and a general day. And and, and unfortunately, back when I was there, and I, my guess is it's still going on, I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, sort of given the end of the legislative session in Albany. But unfortunately, we they couldn't. there was no deal to be made between the governor, the state senate, uh, the mm-hmm. state assembly. The assembly, like June, moved all the primaries to June. If I recall a few years ago, the state senate wanted to do the date sometime in August. Again, I don't know what the rationale was. Well, the June being... Uh, where everybody is still in session in Albany. So you would have a primary, but the legislative session would still be going on. Yeah, but I, which is argument, a very difficult situation for most people who are running. Well, the, the argument to be made on the other side is August is, is harder for people to vote, right? We talk about this is a hard week. I mean, I can't imagine in August we're making it any easier. And so you've got to find a balance, right? It's not oh, yeah. easy. You're not going to be able to please everybody all the time. The, cha- the, the real problem is, is that it's going to take someone who's very involved, very active, who cares a tremendous amount to go out and vote in both primaries, right? You have to be compelled. Now, we're going to talk in a but moment that's it, But in many cases, that's good for that's good for the establishment, not just... Uh, so the establishment, lets, they're able to protect their candidates because the people who are part of the establishment are most invested, and therefore they're most going to go out to vote. So it's actually making these dates on random dates where they're very inconvenient for voters does have does benefit certain people Here, here's what i would say and, I, and michael maybe we should do this later you know whether it's via twitter or some put out a, a sort of a poll I'd, I'd be curious to see sort of the people who are 
are people going to vote in all three elections or are they going to vote in just one or none even? I mean, the, the problem is, is this is it creates a, a little bit of a disenfranchisement. People start, a little bit. Well, it's a, it's you know, a huge disenfranchisement. This is not important one or that's not important one. Come November, it's already kind of out the window. Oh, voting is not important anymore. I mean, we're really setting a, a, a bad standard um, to get people engaged. And so if you take a look at some of the other states and what other people are doing, right? Early voting, um, you know, sort of using technology. Vote from, by mail. Vote by mail, make it a bit easier. I mean, there's there's other, there are things that are being done in other states that are actually encouraging more involvement in voting. And we've talked in Albany, we talked for a long time about maybe making, you know, uh, making, making it easier in, in various different ways. But what we're doing now is, is just it's it's criminal i mean it's wrong i mean you're, you're basically telling you're, you're finding new ways to di encourage people not to get involved in the process and so here's what i would say is thankfully in some primaries there are competitive interesting primaries so my guess is when they're interesting primaries you're going to see a higher turnout right? and we take a look we'll talk about staten island and i believe staten island the turnout's going to be huge right it's an awful week next week is a, is a terrible week for voting I don't think any anybody in Staten Island or in, in Southern Brooklyn is discouraged. I think they're going to come out and vote in that congressional primary. I mean, when you say when you say huge, I, and I, I'm not I'm not disputing that there's a tremendous amount of interest in this primary. We're going to get to that in a second. But when you say huge, your total universe of Republican of Republic registered Republicans who are going to vote in a Republican primary at the end of June, even if there's a tremendous amount of interest. When compared to the number of actual voters in the district, uh, I think it's actually going to be quite low. I, I think I've seen predictions. I mean, that this primary, despite all the hype, will not break twenty thousand Republican voters. Wow. That's, uh, that's I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. I'm not. I'm not working on the race. I I, I like Dan Donovan, longtime friend of mine. Everything. I'm not involved in the race. I just, uh, so just to be very clear. However, just at the same time. I want to say that I don't know that this is going to be a massive I mean, this is probably going to be a very targeted operation to try and get people uh, to the polls. Again, there's no, if you're on Staten Island, yeah, you see a lot, uh, but and Southern Brooklyn, but will there actually be the turnout that is expected? And, you know, this is one of those funny things, you know, who does the better turnout favor between the two? Let's just set the stage for a second. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll end with this. Is Dan Donovan sitting Cong U.S. Well, Cong go on. ahead. No, go no, ahead no, just to, no, no, just to finish off on that point is, is I think that we're making a huge mistake in New York. And I think this is part of the problem, right? Even the people who are, you know, this is what's fascinating because even those who go out, whatever the numbers are, and I agree, you know, while in our, you know, sort of in the comparatively, the numbers are going to be high probably to other primary elections, right? If you take a look at at whether it's it's Kathleen Rice, I, I, I think may even have a primary, or, or Congressman Greg Meeks, who may even have a primary, those numbers are going to be astronomically low. And so I think when I say high turnout comparatively to other primaries out there, but this goes back to the original problem that in New York State, we, we need to do a better job of fixing and getting more people involved and, and finding a way to put primaries together and create one day that will energize people to vote we're, we're making a big mistake here and 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 unfortunately even those people who vote in this primary are going to say come september when you have state primaries for state offices people are gonna say oh i voted in the primaries already right I mean, that's what's going to happen oh, and that's for sure. unfortunate for sure there are one hundred three thousand registered republicans in this uh district that actually includes uh i believe active and inactive so inactive voters are people who haven't voted in the last four years 
Uh, 103,000. I've seen predictions anywhere from 10,000, uh, from about 15,000 to 25,000 on the high end of people actually turn out. Now, it could be higher. Now, we could have something that people, just because of a lot of voters who have not previously participated in elections, you know, there's the Trump effect that you've had back in 2016. It's be very interesting to see who gets out there. And I'm not even sure at this point who it favors depending on the high turnout, because a lot uh, there's just so much uh, strangeness with this whole dynamic. Uh, it's a rare Republican primary in New York City. I mean, you have so few Republican elected officials in New York City that you could actually have a primary for. And uh, it's going to be interesting. So former Congressman Mike Grimm, who recently was released from prison, decided to go ahead and challenge his successor, uh, former DA and now sitting Congressman Dan Donovan, they could not be further apart in personality, Phil, could they? I have no comment on that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, this is Michael Grimm, and I remember, I mean, I was working for the U.S. Senate when that election took place. I was working, um, I was working for Chuck Schumer, and I remember the, the campaign, but, but more importantly, I remember his inauguration, and I remember him. He was, he was your perfect congressional candidate i say that this is the michael graham of i don't know seven years ago i don't know what the exact maybe eight years ago he was your perfect candidate right a veteran fbi he had the looks his hair was perfect he had these blue eyes i mean he was just everything about michael graham was that's the guy who i want to represent me in congress i mean he was just it was perfect it was absolutely perfect and i remember his speech at his inauguration i was at his inauguration um, and I remember the speech and he mesmerized the crowd. I mean, he had this capturing personality that just, you know, he had great, he, he had good ideas. I don't always agree with all of them, but he had some ideas and, and he was able to sort of convey those ideas in a way that just made you feel like, wow, this is the perfect American, you know, just in every which way stood for law and order. And, and, and he was, he was going to, he was going to represent with integrity. I mean, obviously he came in following a, a scandal with the Republicans in that congressional seat. And so, right, this was the guy who was going to clean it up, who was just as clean cut and, and as, as perfect as you can make it. And he's going to give us the next 30 years of just perfect representation in Congress from Staten Island, only for it all to become crumbling down. I don't know how long it took. You know, I, I don't remember. Well, there were a couple things. It wasn't just the, I mean, there were, there were a couple things that happened and you kind of had this crack up. I and mean, first of all, there were several accusations of inappropriate behavior going on in public that but then on actual on live television television oh oh i oh that was that was phil please tell I, us i mean you know clearly there was some allegations you said the pieces started to fall apart and, and by the way to be very clear right it's it's not an easy life and, and we talked about this a lot last week it's a very very difficult life being in the fishbowl to be in the fishbowl every single day day in day out especially by the way and he's coming in sort of as twitter is getting bigger and instagram is getting bigger and and all of a sudden like there's no moment of peace and, and quiet and there's no moment of sort of turning it off you're always always on and so sort of he walked right into this um when a reporter in washington now if 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 you've ever been to the Capitol, there, there's a rotunda, and, and generally, if you turn on any news show, all the news cameras set up on the balcony of one of the rotundas. You can actually go to Washington. You could see where they set up, and it sets for a perfect backdrop. Whenever you, you see on TV uh, a congressman or a senator is getting, getting 
interview, there's those big, large pillars behind them. Generally, they're all in the same place, up on a balcony in uh, in the Capitol. And Michael Grimm was being interviewed by New York One. Um, and apparently, there was, you know, the New York One reporter asked some pointed questions, right, about the, the scandal or the controversy or what was going on. And Michael Grimm and Congressman Grimm at the time had, I guess, had either talked beforehand or didn't talk beforehand, unclear, but didn't want those questions asked. And so he entered and it and excuse me, he ended the interview only a minute later to come back and to threaten the reporter. Not just, you know, I'm very disappointed. I can't believe you would ask. And by the way, that happens all the time after you finish an interview. You know, you're entitled to say to the reporter, you know, we discussed the parameters of the interview and you weren't supposed to ask. But then he goes on to threaten to throw the reporter off the balcony. I mean, camera is still rolling, folks, right in front of the camera, essentially cursing with some expletives in there that I'm going to throw you off of this balcony. I will break you like a boy. I will break you like a boy. It's, I mean, and then the wheels came off. That was it. Entirely. That was it. I and mean, I don't was, have to. I mean, right. I guess. That I mean, that's it. that's not what he ended up in jail for. There were some tax fraud issues together. I guess paying employees off the books about a restaurant that he owned. Now, a lot of people in Staten Island feel, a lot of voters feel that these charges are ridiculous. That it's the kind of thing anybody who owns a restaurant is doing is paying people off the books. It's the kind of thing that if he wasn't. Uh, if he wasn't a Republican congressman, he would never have stop. been prosecuted. I'm, I'm, I'm just. Yeah, no, no. What I would say is, if he see, I and a lot, people, a lot of people, a lot of people believe that that so, he is so being he was targeted. Uh, can I just say one thing? Uh, you should. I was a Democratic assemblyman, but like I, what what bothers me about that statement was because he was a Republican congressman. I think it was because he was a congressman, right? When you're in the public eye, and we have talked about this whether it was about uh, Shelley Silver or Dean Skelos or, or any one of the two dozen elected officials that have gone to prison or are on their way to prison. When you're an elected official, you're under the microscope. You have to do everything exactly right because somebody is always watching. We've talked about this all the time. We talked about this a, a lot, right? This idea of you always have to be worried that it's not just about what you're doing, but it's about how what you're doing is perceived you have to be doing it right. And Michael Graham, as a United States congressman, is going to be under the watchful eye of, you know, his detractors, his supporters, the FBI, the police, the whole world. And so, you know, if you're running a restaurant, you better do it on the up and up. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. So that's for that's for sure. No question about that. So let's let's just set the stage for a second. Then you have Dan Donovan walks in. Dan Donovan is the DA of Staten Island. He wins a special election. And now all of a sudden it is he is faced with the challenge of Republican primary from Mike Grimm. Now Mike Grimm had one of the, a pretty liberal who voting serve, who did serve his time, by the right, way. Right. Who did so Mike Grimm did have a pretty liberal voting record when he was in Congress and certainly not a conservative uh, or considered a conservative. Uh, Dan Donovan has taken a number of votes against the Trump administration, but by and large is supporting the president. But Grimm has portrayed himself as the Trump guy in this district, with Donovan being anti-Trump. In fact, even ev- pretty much every piece of communications and mail that Grimm puts out says anti-Trump Dan Donovan. And um, you know we can talk about this in a second, but even yesterday or two days ago when Mike Bloomberg announced he was putting $80 million towards helping Democrats win the House this coming November, 
Uh, Graham tied that immediately to Dan Donovan, Mike Bloomberg having been a longtime Dan Donovan supporter. And he says anti-Trump Mike Bloomberg, you know, again, you know, talks about the, the money that. Now, the funny thing is, of course, that Grimm, uh, he kind of unclear, you know, he's just, he has this, the, the rogue maverick type of Trump effect. And even though now the president has actually endorsed Dan Donovan, although, in fact, his endorsement contained an error that said that Dan Donovan supported the president's tax cuts. Uh, you know, you have to see now what the effect of that. Rudy Giuliani went this past weekend to Staten Island to campaign for Grimm. Uh, sorry, to campaign for Donovan. Donovan. Excuse me. The, the establishment has ra- rallied behind Donovan. And the funny thing is about the polling in this is that the, the, the only public, real public poll that we've seen is the New York One Siena poll, which has Donovan up by 10 points. I'm sorry, I keep getting this wrong. Has Grimm up Grimm by, up 10, by points, 10 points, which is the funny, which is in fact interesting. But that could, that can flip very easily because this, you know, with regard to turnout. But the, the same voters actually believe that Dan Donovan has the better chance of winning in November. So a lot of Republican voters seem to want to support Grimm because they believe he was wronged because for a number of reasons, and he seems kind of Trumpy, and Trump is very popular in Staten Island and, and Southern Brooklyn. Uh, but at the same time, there is definitely should be a nervousness amongst Republicans as to how how much of a great idea it would be to have a convicted felon, uh, even if he has served his time, be on the ticket uh, and holding that seat, which is a critical seat to hold to hold the for the for Republicans to hold the House come November. By the way, and this is an interesting point, especially particularly for that seat, is that after sort of before Michael Grimm was elected, um, and gosh, I can't remember his first name, uh, Mike Mike McMahon? Yes. Mike, Mike McMahon, who was a Democrat. Who's now the DA. Who's now the DA. <laughs> you just, you gotta love it, right? The rotating, the rotating wheel. Mike McMahon um, served as a Democrat in that seat, which leads people, which leads one to think that a Democrat could win that congressional seat. Now, it would be difficult, especially in a year like this. Fascinatingly, much... M- a lot less like everywhere else around the country in a year like this where usually it would, I think, favor a Democrat. I think in this seat, actually, I don't think the Democrat is going to do as well. However... Well, there's always looked at this Republican seat, but there are actually correct. more Democrats in New York 11. Correct. There's a couple of interesting things about New York 11. Okay, there are more Democrats, even though everybody it's always been held by a Republican except for two years. Number two, it's actually the most Jewish district that is held by a Republican in the entire country. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, 12% of the voters in the district, at least according to uh, uh, census data, are Jewish in this district. So, I mean, there are a lot more more Jewish districts out there, but this is the most Jewish one that is held by a Republican. So that is uh, you know, the little factoid there. And from our perspective, and there are definitely big pockets of, uh, substantial pockets of Jewish voters in this district. How many are registered Republicans, of course, is in of itself is interesting because we know that a lot of Jews in New York City in general will, even if they vote conservatively, even if they vote Republican, will register as Democrats in order to vote in primaries. So that would take them out of this primary, this primary battle. Yeah, look, this is an interesting race, right? I mean, this is a place, and this is what's... <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen this before. The president wholeheartedly, in not one tweet, in two tweets, right, endorsed uh, Dan Donovan, Congressman Donovan, has sent surrogates, right? Rudy Giuliani and others have done rallies and they've campaigned and they've gone out. And yet, the opposing candidate 
still claimed to be the Trump guy. To be the Trump guy. That's because Anthony Scaramucci went there to campaign for him. So and and which is by the way is another and, interesting and, thing. And the Mooch might be known as the you know as the actual Trump. You know, the real Trump surrogate. All right, now you just you, you pulled me in a, in a separate direction, and I apologize, everybody. But can we really, when when you hear about Anthony Scaramucci, can, can we really say he was the White House communications director? Eleven days. Why is that in his bio? Why is that in his introduction? When you are the communications director for eleven days, you don't get to put it. in I your think bio. you get paid. Sorry. I get you think you get paid more on the speaking circuit. Oh my you're... gosh! It just. I'm sorry. That was a pet, pet peeve. It, it bothers me. Um, okay, Phil. I think this is going to be an interesting. Phil, race who's going to win? Prediction. I think, I think Donovan's going to win. I do. I think that sometimes when people call, especially in Staten Island, when you're getting receiving a, a poll, I think sometimes people, you know, whether they're not as honest or they just want to have some fun or you know they just want to create some controversy. You know, I you know this, this is a tough one to predict. I don't think the polls are exactly right. The polls are showing the last the public poll we saw was ten points. I think it's going to be a lot closer than that, and I think Congressman Donovan pulls it off. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think in the end, it's gonna it'll hopefully come together for for Donovan. He, I, I think he was kind of caught flat footed, uh, in a in a certain way, just with regard to the campaign and with regard to the intensity and with regard to the way Grimm was going to go at him and throw it at him. But I think in the end, uh, hopefully, a lot of Republican voters. I mean, it really depends who turns out because if it's the if it's the red meat Republicans. Grim is going to take it, but if you have a if you have a wider base of people who are thinking about November and thinking about holding the seat, then they got to think. And now I wouldn't I wouldn't underestimate Mike Grimm coming uh, coming November, but I do think he would have a very difficult time. Uh, you know, another we should just very quickly switch to before you know a couple other issues we should get to. I mean, there are other primaries out there, and the interesting thing, as you've seen in other states, there are a lot of Democrats who want to come and run for Congress, particularly in the Trump era, and instead of having one-on-one races in some of these places where you might look at Republicans as being vulnerable, let's just say New York, the first district, which is Lee Zeldin, the second district, which is uh, Peter King. Okay, you have and the 19th district, which is John Fassa, the 21st district, Lee Stefanik, you are having actual really bloody Democratic primaries for these seats where uh, come June 27th, when it comes around the at the end, uh, you're going to have a Democrat who might be left with no money facing an entrenched incumbent with a lot of money. So, Phil, what's going on, on the Democratic side in some of these places? Yeah, I mean, look, you can take a look at, I think it's it's New York 19, um, where you have literally eight or nine Democrats who, by the way, I would say four or five of them, maybe even more. And again, you know, I haven't dug into the race and I've, I've I'm a strong supporter of, of an old friend of mine, this uh, friend of mine, Garrett Rhodes, who used to work for the governor's office when I was in the state assembly. I think he's a great guy, very qualified. He's worked really, really hard on his primary campaign. But here's the problem. He's spending a tremendous amount of money, right, along with along with competitors and eight or nine of them in that race in the Democratic primary. Whether he wins or loses on Tuesday, and, and I hope I wish him the best, and, and, and I hope that he does well, but he's going to have a hard time because he's got to start from scratch, right? He's got to start raising money. He's got to start uh, preparing for the general election. Now, here's the one good thing about having the, the, the primary so early is that there is some time, four and a half months, before you have to worry about the general. But, I mean, we're spending nine, they're spending all these months, and this campaign started a long time ago, as Democrats in this primary, right, tearing each other apart. Now, I'm not saying I'm not for competition, and I think I am. 
But as Democrats, we've got to find some way to work together, right? To have nine people running against each other, you're really just you're muddling the message. I mean, there's no way you're there's no way you're you're able to come out and differentiate differentiate yourself from a pack. I believe we should have competitive primaries. I think it's it's important for our democracy. But on some level, folks, nine people, right? It just it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Now, here's the difference that I, I will draw one distinction. The distinction I'll draw is when it is an open seat, right? There's nobody in the seat and like, you know, you have an opportunity to do, you know, for, for anybody to come in essentially all on equal footing. But we're all vying here to run against an incumbent who I think, by the way, and, and as much as I love Garrett and as much as um, I love other, you know, sort of Democrats in races, I don't know if they're going to have the ability to beat the incumbent. I mean, I just I just don't know. You know, John Fasso is somebody who I know who also I, I had the chance to serve with in Albany. Again, I you know, given sort of all the politics, I'm not sure. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that even a really strong Democrat who had a long time to campaign could win. In this case, we're not giving the Democrat every possible opportunity, right? We're, we're making him run a race through nine people, spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that he raised on, on, on a primary and, and sort of we're almost setting ourselves up as Democrats to fail. Couldn't agree more. It's it's quite well. Look, everybody's entitled to run. Everybody should feel if they have something to contribute, they should get into the race. You get into the fray. You you go ahead and you put your best foot forward. Uh, but uh, I I think from a party perspective, you have you also have to think about the aftermath. And there are a lot. There's clearly a lot of interest, particularly. I mean, there's a lot of interest in politics these days. It's it's exciting times. So people want to get in it. And that's that's a good thing. But the way also our primary system is set up, uh, you you know, you're you're basically with the low, as we talked to about before, with the low turnout timing of it, you know, being the end of June, you're setting yourself up for really having a very small number of voters select the person who might not go into the general you know towards november with a tremendous amount of support i mean in theory right somebody could walk out of new york uh, of new york 19 right with an eight nine-way primary and have gotten elected uh, as the nominee the democratic nominee with what four thousand votes five thousand votes could be even lower than that. i mean right could be even low, i mean which is which is unbelievable because in the end you're got to run against a guy like john faso who is uh who is a well-known entity in that district, and then you got to, and it's not any different when you have, let's say, as I said, you know, you got to a, a very competitive primary against these other. The one place that you don't right now, actually, where Democrats, I think, which is kind of the prime pickup seat that they're looking at upstate, is the Brindisi Tenney race. I don't know what district number that is, but there you did you, twenty-two. I think twenty-two. So you avoided a Democratic primary on that one. Well, look, um, in that race, had, by the way, right. Anthony Brindisi was a sitting elected official with a tremendous amount of clout, with a tremendous amount of popularity and favorability, and so you know. I think that's the difference between New York 22 and 19 is that 19... You didn't have a sitting elected correct. official, right? They were all relatively unknown right. trying to build their... Build Which is their interesting, base. of course, that a lot of sitting uh, state officials did not choose to get into these congressional primaries. I think last time they did. Well, this is a tough year. Look, everybody, electoral... The congressional elections are just given what we saw in the presidential are just so unpredictable. Right. I think people... Exactly. They have a good job. They're they're satisfied, whether it's in the state legislature or wherever they are. They're not willing to take that risk. All right, Phil, to run. speak of unpredictable, we need to just unpack in the last uh, two, uh, two and a half minutes that we have, unpack the new administration's immigration policy. 
because this president signed an executive order yesterday ending child separation. And this is the first time I can think of in the in the uh, two years or less than two years of the Trump administration that the president actually backed down on such a big issue. Although he say he didn't back down, he found a he he himself found a solution to this. Uh, you know, it's kind of a little bit like the arsonist and the firefighter situation. You create a problem and then you come in and fix it. I am begging my detractors to please email me on this. Tell me how this president, I, I, I mean, I'm asking you to send me an email or send the show an email and tell me how. Or tweet. Or tweet. I'm getting this wrong somehow where this president didn't for multiple weeks say he couldn't do anything and that only Congress can act. By the way, which to me was already funny because if we recall, I alone could fix all the problems, but he kept blaming the Democrats. Like somehow the Democrats are in charge, right? Like somehow they have control of Congress, but blaming the Democrats in Congress for tearing families apart. He spent weeks doing that. Not only that, other people in his administration saying, what are you talking about? We're not even doing that. What is it you're talking about? Others saying that, you know, sort of a different excuse. So much so that, as we talked about, right, the Mooch, Anthony Scaramucci, basically said, who is advising this president? Whoever is, is, is doing him a tremendous disservice. The president actually said, I can't, there is no executive order that can solve this problem. And, and Michael, what happened yesterday? Blame the Democrats? Of course. It was the Democrats' fault. The president signed an executive order. To right. It's unclear that you problem. actually need an executive order because this didn't seem it's, to have been directed from the president. No, this it was seems a policy. To be right. Uh, come down from. I, I, I. It was quite extraordinary. And then, of course, the secretary of Homeland Security gets out and says, oh, well, we don't know if we can reunite the children with their parents. Do you hear what that? that I, mean, I, I know I'm a Democrat. That no, was tough. Me, I know I'm a Democrat. No, no, like, that was tough. This whole thing, I, I have to say, it, you know, you talk about self Look. President goes in front of a crowd, and this is very popular with the build the wall folks. But the optics here are so bad for Republicans in general. Let me just say, look, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there for this week here on the Malcolm Siegel Network. This is Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder saying goodbye until next week. Stay tuned with for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs. Mm-hmm.